Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Brett Chisholm. I'm Josh Evans. And on today's episode, we talk about Josh's harrowing one-wheel accident, the real-life feral children raised by wolves who inspired Mowgli from the Jungle Book, and then we lighten the mood with some discussion about global conflict, war profiteering, modern conspiracy theories, and the one good thing that comes out of it all, the cool, futuristic battle tech that will probably not be so cool once the fictional finally becomes our reality. So today we're talking about the book trilogy, The Red, by Lyndon Nagata. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims, let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett. Josh. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing better than you, I think. Uh, yeah, well, I can guarantee you that the uh, the recorder is actually running this time. Oh, yeah. Well, um, I'm going to use my telepathic abilities and predict that you're about to tell me a horrifying one-wheel story. But what? I- Brett, I didn't, know that, <laughs> I didn't know you had ESP. But I'm definitely going to act surprised uh, when you talk. No, I, I do. So uh, Josh had just gotten into maybe the first three or four minutes of this harrowing tale before we realized that uh, he made the same amateur mistake that I had made recently in failing to properly hit the record button. Something even more (laughs) harrowing than my one-wheel story was us losing that great conversation we just had. Well, there'll be others. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you again and pretend like it's the first time. So, uh, you know how I told you I had like a thousand miles of riding on my one wheel and never, uh, never had a bad crash. Uh, no, uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> I, you know how I just told you that earlier. I do, I do. I was <laughs> well. I, I thought I was supposed to act like I hadn't heard this before, but um, that part I had actually heard before. So well, I can no longer <laughs> say that because I just uh, recently had a terrifying crash on my one wheel i was uh so i i I just rode up to the store to get a bag of chips uh party size party size um had it in my backpack you didn't you left out this detail in the first telling (laughs) uh was this a party size for one person or did you have a were you having having a party you've seen me eat chips this is my bag of chips well you know the party size might be the the lifesaver this whole thing honestly well that that's why I added the embellishment right, okay. this time around. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's get through this uh, yeah. in a a manner that seems like you haven't heard my story before. You're getting ahead of me, Brett. Um, so I had just uh, I was just heading out from the gas station, and I realized on the uh, One Wheel app that I had just hit my top speed of twenty one point eight miles an hour, like my lifetime top speed. And uh, so I, w- I was thinking, like, oh, that's really cool, you know, like it didn't feel that fast. It kind of just felt like how I would normally ride. So on the way back, you could just say that I was a little bit overconfident. And, um, I feel like the one wheel, the, uh, probably the worst conditions it can ride in would be like an uphill grade, especially if you're going straight up a hill, even like five or 10 degrees since, uh, pushing down on the nose is required to make the one wheel go forward. As soon as you start going up a hill, you lose a lot of your clearance between the board and the ground. And, and, and on top of that, you are demanding more from the motor because I've gone, 
you know, I've gone deep diving down um, <clears throat> multiple internet forums because, you know, the one wheel is awesome, but nose dives definitely happen and they are, um, they can be pretty serious. Uh, they can cause really serious injuries. And I wanted to make sure that I understood this action sports vehicle. And basically the motor, it doesn't really have a speed limit. It has like a power output limit. And when you're going uphill, it's trying to balance you. It's trying to propel you. And now at this point, it's trying to propel you uphill. So you've severely limited the available power um, that's that's there for you at your disposal uh, at your disposal when you demand it for other tasks like the balancing. And so you know the the point at which you demand more from the motor than what it can give you is the nosedive, and that's much more likely to ha- to happen uphill. So I've said it before, yeah. but I'll I wanted to reiterate it. Yeah, yes, all those things contributed to this accident. So uh, pretty much as soon as I started up the hill, I mean, it was just like an instant nosedive and I was cruising. So it immediately ejected me and I, I took like one, two, three gigantic steps, like as fast as I could go. And on the third step, I realized there was no way I was going to be able, be able to keep up. I was already like 45 degrees out in front of my legs. And so on the third step, I just kind of gave up and like brought my arm in and did like this diving roll to my side. I hit my shoulder, my elbow, my hip. And then when I rolled to my back, I heard this gigantic like pow. And uh, I didn't know what it was. But uh, when I got home, I realized that that was my bag of chips exploding in my backpack. So it seemed like it honestly felt like that bag of chips acted as an airbag. Like it it sucked up a lot of the impact to my back. Oh, thank my God, hip, man. I have massive road rash. It's probably like the size of a silver dollar. So do you, besides and, uh, the road rash, you were wearing a helmet, I assume, or no? Yeah, I oh, was. Thank God. Uh, luckily, my helmet didn't hit the ground. Um, I think, I don't know, probably from 20 years of skydiving and like the, the parachute landing fall, the PLF being like so ingrained in you. You know, about like rolling to your side and pulling your head in, protecting your head and kind of absorbing the impact on your on your back and on your shoulder instead of your head and your extremities. I think that definitely played a, a big part in me not getting more injured. But I was definitely like the day after I was limping a little bit and uh Oh man. The road rash, man. Like I haven't experienced anything like that since like I was a kid, like skateboarding, Ugh. and I forgot how bad it sucks to lose a big uh, swath of your skin. You know, I usually when I have some uh, juicy bruise or scratch or something, I I like to you know pull down my pants or lift up my shirt and show it to you on Zoom. Oh, well, if uh, you insist, <laughs> I'm gonna have to remove the <laughs> that's, bandage. That's that's what I was going for. Uh, all, right. all right. Whoa. That is really gnarly. <laughs> and that sound. I think they could hear me peel the bandage off I and think, then tap it back on. I, I, they'll definitely be able to hear the Josh ass slap of you just <laughs> double checking the. Uh, yeah, that is super gnarly, man. That's really bad. That is a, there, a large swath of Josh's skin has been removed from his right buttocks. <laughs> His rumpus. His, wow, that's wild, man. <laughs> you know, it's it's um, it's crazy because this 
Something similar just happened to me recently. You know, I ride, I think, conservatively. I definitely have not put a thousand miles on, even though lately I've been riding my one wheel every single day. Um, I'm actually going to be taking the safety device off of my board. Uh, so I, I ride with the little fangs, which are a aftermarket safety device designed to prevent exactly this sort of thing. But I think that they're really only effective on pavement because they're little tiny wheels. They're not really off-road wheels. And now the kind of terrain I'm riding on is very rocky. It's very rugged. It's, um, you know, there's a lot of things that these fangs could catch on and it reduces that clearance that you're talking about. And so just, I think it was yesterday or the day before I was riding up a hill that I've been afraid to ride up because I think it exceeds the, um, the slope limits. I don't remember what the limits are spelled out in the instruction manual. There's definitely a, an incline or decline limitation <laughs> that's listed in the manual. Um, but you know, just based on my experience around the board, I, I, I ride up one direction up a different hill and then I ride down this steeper part. Cause I didn't think I could go up. Well, I decided to finally give it a shot and I had my first official nosedive, but it was not nearly as eventful. Um, I was able to just step off because it's so steep and rocky. I was only going maybe like three or four miles an hour. And I just basically walked off the board uh, when the motor, you know, um, wasn't able to keep up with what I was asking for and quickly just snapped. Did the you nose feel the like the gear slip or something when it got to, to the incline limit? Um, I didn't feel like gear slip, but I just, it, it felt like an instantaneous, like the motor couldn't keep, keep up. And it had rebalanced. I think it engaged, re-engaged really quickly, but at that point it was too late. It just basically, you know, the board stopped and it ejected me, but I was not going very fast at all. So it was basically a non-event, but it was officially like my first official nosedive. Whew, two in one week. Yeah, that's... Wow, we are... Uh... We're really catching up on all those missed nose dives that we've been leaving on the table. Let's not I, let's uh, not make it a habit. I'm I'm really glad you're okay because people, you know, the not. the injuries that happen when people just and this is anecdotal. This is just from me trying to figure out how to be safe on this device myself. It seems like the injuries that are most commonly reported from nose dives at higher speeds are collarbones shoulders, maybe a wrist. Like it's exactly what you're talking about because you are being ejected from a point, not like a bike. Like it's like being tripped at a high speed from feet first. And so your center of gravity is so much higher than the device you're standing on. I mean, you're going to go pretty much, uh, torso first into the pavement, maybe even head first. I mean, I, I have heard a story about somebody that, you know, wasn't wearing a helmet and did not have as good of an outcome as you did. Yeah, I got really lucky and uh, it was, I mean, riding, you're already in kind of a compromised position because you're putting weight on your front foot. Your legs are spread. You're standing sideways, basically. It's it's not a great position for running out. And uh, yeah, I definitely feel like uh, it could have been way worse and... I now, it's uh, it's just like built up a little bit, like a step up in the respect that I have to give the board now when I yeah. ride it, and that's a good thing I think for uh, for action sports. And this was the XR Plus, right? Because I know you upgraded yep. recently. Okay. 
That's pretty wild. It was pretty crazy. I'm glad you're okay. <laughs> yeah, me too. The you know the one wheel is so fun, and I definitely evangelize all of the wonderful qualities. I mean, it it is just a fantastic toy, uh, but really, it's an action sport, and it is an it is a vehicle that should be respected, so that you can enjoy it as the fun thing that it is, and not get hurt. Just throwing that out there. And that's why One Wheel will never sponsor us because no matter what, we're going to be evangelizing the One Wheel on our own dime because we love it so much. (laughs) That's right. But it's a good thing that we'll never be sponsored because we can always be honest about the risks involved as well. So you can count on us. So get a One Wheel. Uh, I think Brett would agree with me by saying that uh, the One Wheel is the feat of 2021. You will not need to walk anymore once you get a One Wheel. That's correct. So I got a uh, I got a a message from a listener that I wanted to read on here. Um, this is my friend Taryn, and apparently who just discovered the podcast because she wrote, "Just got introduced to your podcast. This shit is gold. Listening at work right now, and then a laughing, smiling emoji." And uh, I thought that was really awesome. One, uh, I love hearing that people enjoy the show. So thank you, Taryn. And also, I love to hear that a listener shared the show with her nice. because uh, that was uh, it was kind of a surprise. So thank you all the listeners out there for also sharing the show. We truly appreciate that as well. Taryn, hello, and thank you for ignoring all those customers waiting in line because you um, couldn't hear them. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what Taryn does for work. So I'm just going <laughs> to assume there's a line of really upset clients, uh, but she's just so enamored with our content recommendations that she's just putting sultry off. tones yeah <laughs> yes yes yeah whatever uh, whatever customers are being neglected right now it's worth it <laughs> uh, so yes it is now time for me to uh let some listeners know out there all of our listeners that i will actually be taking a quick break from the show i'm not sure exactly when I'm going to return, I'm hoping it's definitely going to be before Halloween. I have a really packed work schedule coming up, and I really need to focus on work, and I apologize. The good news is there's going to be an exciting guest host filling in when he or she can. Don't want to give too much away. Indeed. Um, but you know, the, we're going to leave it up to a vote at uh, the end of October going into November. Um, if this person... Uh, if the the fans decide they want to replace me with this person, this person will get my life, my the airstream, the <laughs> wife, the dog, and the one wheel. So you'll still do the podcast. So good luck. They get all those other <laughs> exactly. things. Exactly. Based on this vote. Exactly. So uh, good luck to them. Uh, we're all we're all counting on them to uh, uh, fill in the Brett shaped hole in my life. <sighs> what a hole it is. <laughs> But uh, yes, yeah, so Brett, I'm definitely gonna I'm gonna be a little sad you're not here, but I am going to uh, keep bringing the show to you guys. And you may be used to this by now with the show. The show may not be coming out on a regular schedule while Brett is out. He is, after all, one half of the Content Clearinghouse team. But uh, we are going to do our best to bring you as many shows as we can in his absence. And when he gets back, that'll just make that sweet, sweet Brett voice all the sweeter. Knowing that there has been a loss in our life. <laughs> Brett hasn't been around for a few weeks. 
Well, thanks, Josh. I appreciate it. I'm excited to uh, uh, listen to the show and, and hear a new content perspective. I think it's going to be delicious. Mmm. Well, yummy. Well, speaking of some delicious, absolutely. I've got a really fun off top for you tonight, Josh. Uh, feral kids are fun, aren't they? Oh, yeah. That's uh, <laughs> totally what I want my children to be. Uh, do you have you read up much on feral kids? Do you know any of these more well known or famous stories about feral children? No, I don't really know anything about it. Well, this is interesting. Uh, so. Th- you know, the I think the big example in entertainment or in content, because after all, this is the content clearinghouse. The the big example in entertainment of a feral child uh, is the Jungle Book. Uh, you know, the Jungle Book, if it's to be believed, being raised in the wild by animals is just full of fun, shenanigans, adventures. You have a lot of friends. You've got bears, jaguars, wolves, what have you. Uh, by the way. Did you see the live-action remake of The Jungle Book? No, I haven't seen it. I've just seen, like, clips and behind-the-scenes stuff of it, but I haven't seen the movie. You know, I saw it in theaters. I thought it was pretty fantastic. Um, Christopher Walken singing I Want to Be Like You as the King of the Apes, I think, was a highlight for me. But, unfortunately, life is not quite as uh, joyful when it comes to neglected or feral kids that are raised by wolves <laughs> disney makes it look so fun <laughs> they do. yeah um that's their specialty they're in the business if of the fun. content clearing house has taught us anything all of those animals want to eat you <laughs> well i stumbled across a story this was published in june of 2021 uh tim brinkhoff is the author of this article it's on the website all that's which I feel like I'm going to be getting some really interesting off-top fodder for the future from. It's a, They have a lot of cool stuff on there, but the article in question I'm talking about is actually about the real-life inspiration for Mowgli from The Jungle Book. Now, this article is called The Short, Sad Life of Dinah Sanichar. I hope I'm saying that right. The Feral Boy Who Inspired The Jungle Book. Josh, I'm going to text you a picture of Dinah right now because I want to get your reaction uh, recorded from this. All right. I have a feeling he's going to look pretty rough. Yeah. This guy looks absolutely insane. He's got the craziest look in his eye I've ever seen. I mean, he looks like, um, yeah, if I was going to imagine what a feral human would look like, he looks like that. He's got like an animalistic quality in his eyes. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to say about this, but um, my thinking was, you know, the 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 saying that a picture is worth a thousand words. I think that rings true with this photo, and in this case, I I don't want to put a word count on it, but this is a, equivalent to at least one long haunting sad poem <laughs> for sure um it's a haunting photo so this photograph of dina sanichar was taken sometime between 1889 and 1894 now this picture was taken at least two decades after he was found so just like his fictional mowgli counterpart dina was raised by wolves and spent the first few years of his life thinking he was a wolf i mean it you know, supposedly this really happened. Uh, the, the story goes that he was lying in a cave 
and he was found by some hunters. And at the time, they thought he was maybe about six years old or younger. So obviously, he didn't really approach the hunters. He didn't answer any other questions. So the hunters, they, they didn't want to leave him out in the wild. So they took him to a local orphanage. And since he didn't really have a name, the missionaries at the orphanage called him Dina Sanachar after the Hindi word for Saturday, which was the day that he arrived at the orphanage. Whoa. So there they tried to teach him all the things that he never learned. They started with the basics, walking and talking. But his animal instincts, unfortunately, seemed to prevail over this foreign human behavior, um, at least for this particular case. So during the stay at his mission orphanage, he was given a second name, Wolf Boy. So the missionaries, I mean, the, they swear... A little more descriptive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it is descriptive to, to his case. I mean, they, they truly believed that he was raised by wild animals. He had never experienced any human contact. Um, and according to their accounts, I mean, it makes sense. He walked on all fours. He had difficulty standing on his own two feet. He only ate raw meat. Um, he not on oh, he not on bones to sharpen his teeth. And there's a picture in this article as well of him you know, being fed what I assume is raw meat and he's kind of on all fours. Uh, so the superintendent of the orphanage once wrote that the, uh, the facility with which, or the faculty with which that they got along on his four hands and feet is surprising. And also wrote that Dina or wolf boy would smell food before they ate or tasted it. And if they don't like the smell, they throw it away. Um, communication was obviously very difficult he did have some sort of language, but it wasn't human language. Whenever he wanted to express himself, he would growl or he would howl just like a wolf. Um, he couldn't understand hand signals. So, you know, a lot of times people who don't speak the same language, they can get close to understanding one another by pointing at various things with their fingers. But It's like all of that is based on a lifetime of human communication. Exactly. I can't even imagine how this would rewire your brain. Exactly. I mean, this is a really, you know, interesting, I think this is what, what kind of strikes at this human curiosity is like, what would it be like if you truly were raised in, the, you know, in the, in proximity to animals with no human contact. And I really do think that there is examples of this. I mean, they would, well, you would have the, you would have the, the neural pathways just sure. instinct like from from nature uh-huh. just the nature of our brain for communication and for speech and it, it's it's so interesting that that developed into basically a wolf language that he may be the only human in history that spoke yeah it's like creating his own language that somehow bridges the gap between him and the wolves yeah I, That's fascinating. I mean just because we have the neural pathways um you know i think the neural pathways are there um for adaptation for learning for yeah. watching and for learning so clearly he survived he communicated in some way um now eventually he he learned to understand the missionaries he never learned to speak any human language he did learn how to stand upright although it was difficult for him, he began to dress himself. Uh, one very human behavior he did pick up was he learned to smoke cigarettes. <laughs> so, oh, of course, uh, our uh, greatest contribution to the animal kingdom. <laughs> uh, so these these stories of children being raised by wolves, believe it or not, 
they have popped up all across India. In most cases, the missionaries caring for the children were the only sources of information. So it's hard to say whether these stories, uh, you know, they were really feral children. If, if it was truly accurate, there is some debate about it. Um, some people do. I'm sure there'd be so many legends based on this, especially in India, if this happened there. You know, like this would just become part of like the, the lexicon of growing up, I would imagine. Yeah, I, I you know, I think that there you know there there is some opinions that these stories were invented either for media attention who knows um there's also some some guesses that maybe the children weren't raised by animals but that they actually had an intellectual or physical disability and people just jumped to conclusions about the root cause of their behavior um and supposedly you know just at this one particular mission orphanage Dina Sanichar was not the only wolf child living there. The superintendent uh, claimed that he was joined by two other boys and one girl that were sounds like also, he was looking for funding that were also raised by wolves. <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure. Here, here's the thing: the there are uh, some other examples of feral children that there's a lot more credible evidence for. I mean, these are actually verified stories. So one of the ones that I read about is Oksana Malaya. She was a Ukrainian girl. This She was born in the 90s. So this is a lot more recent. Now, she was raised by stray dogs and uh, her alcoholic parents had left her outside when she was just a baby. So she managed to survive. Oh she was taken into custody years later by social workers. She couldn't speak and moved around on all fours. So very, very similar. So I, I, in my opinion, these verified stories do add credibility to the real-life Mowgli uh, story. So Oksana, uh, things turned out a little bit better. Uh, after years of therapy, she learned to speak Russian. She actually now has a boyfriend, and she works on a farm caring for animals. You can find some you know, information about her now, what she looks like, some interviews on the internet if you want to um, kind of follow this rabbit hole. I think it's really interesting. Another verified story, Shamdio, an Indian boy, he was around four years old and he was found living with wolves inside a forest in India. He had sharpened teeth, long hooked fingernails, and calluses on his palms, elbows, and knees. Um, So there is, I mean, this does for sure happen. So, in my opinion, it, it, you know, I think that this is this is definitely uh, supporting the case that these missionaries weren't just trying to, I don't know, um, explain away some sort of strange disability that made you act like a wolf, right? Like this, this does happen. So, with the with Shamdio, unfortunately, he died young, um, unlike Oksana, and that seems to be common with these feral kids. Lung cancer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So actually, Dina Sanichar, he he passed away when he was 35 from tuberculosis. Um, and even at the time of his death, he still had never really fully adjusted to life at the orphanage. So it, you know, it's it's hard to say for sure, but uh, this sort of thing does happen. There's a lot of really interesting, both verified, uh, factual information on, on online that you can find that's like really haunting, really dark. Um, and also just a lot of like legends that are really interesting. So I don't know if you, I don't know if this off top makes you want to bleach the darkness out of your brain, 
Um, but if you do, you can just <laughs> go watch a fun Disney movie like The Jungle Book. It's really cute. It's really fun. Um, That's totally how it goes down <laughs> in real life. But if you should, uh-huh. speaking of darkness, you should share that photo in the show notes because it really is haunting. Like it you, is haunting. You, you pretty much nailed it with that. <laughs> it is haunting. It is haunting. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're like me, uh, when you learn about something like this, you'll want to spend at least a couple hours after this episode just diving down the rabbit hole of uh, Dina, uh, um, Shamdio, Sanichar, Oxana. I mean, the stories of other feral kids, uh, it really is fascinating to think that something like this could have happened to literally any one of us. It just depends on like what's, what particular circumstances you were born, whatever whatever set of uh, time and space collided at, at the moment of your birth. So um, anyway, that's my piece on feral kids. Check it out. It is some pretty interesting stuff. That is very interesting. And give it a few years, and we might have some children raised by wolf story in here in Colorado since uh, they just voted to reintroduce wolves into the state. Oh, you mean so? You mean the yeah. uh, qualified animal adoptive parent act of twenty twenty one? Yeah, I wonder what it is about wolves that, like, why they are adopting a human baby instead of just eating it. That That's, that is seems a good very bizarre. It is. It is bizarre. That is definitely something that crossed my mind. But I mean, I I don't know. Wolves are a pack animal. They're incredibly intelligent. If you found a helpless prey that was unlike other prey it does it really seem worth the calories or do you think that they realized uh instinctively that there was a benefit to raising this creature as one they're of the gonna pack? get a movie deal out of this <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna have a starring role in the jungle book too <laughs> yeah exactly that's Wolf probably Man. what the wolves were thinking yeah that's definitely it yeah it's interesting wow, that's interesting it is yeah. interesting stuff i i wish that some of these stories were a little more lighthearted, but they're all, they're all besides Oksana having a, you know, a bit of a happy ending. Um, unfortunately, a lot of these stories came about due to some sort of serious childhood neglect or abuse. Um, uh, you know, like it, it's not good when your kid is raised by wolves. It, it's not, uh, it's usually Ideal. not a result of a, of a positive thing happening. <laughs> oh yeah just imagine how twisted the jungle book prequel is it's just a mogul's trip from the hospital to ding the wolf den that's got to be rough yeah it might make a great you know dark christopher nolan directed disney reboot sometime though Ooh. like the the real real life mowgli like gritty hollywood are you listening <laughs> So what's on your uh, content circuit? I'm so glad you asked, Josh. Um, honestly, before last night, I had nothing. I, uh, I'm i really focusing on, on some work stuff. I have not had anything in the content circuit. Fortunately, I rectified that before, the sh- uh, before recording the episode tonight. Uh, last night, Bree and I watched a show together. For the first time in months, I'd say, we really liked this salacious drama that we watched during the pandemic lockdown. It's called The Morning Show, and it's a drama that is actually on Apple TV+. Plus. So it's one of their original shows, 
and it's got Jennifer Aniston, and it's got Reese Witherspoon, and it's got Steve Carell, and he plays kind of a Matt Lauer. It's like a um, a lot of sex scandals for like a morning show hosts, basically a lot of behind the scenes drama. And it's obviously fictional and uh, very dramatized, but it has a lot of parallels to what is happening. And season two just came out, so we watched the first episode of season two. It's just kind of a juicy, fun drama. And then I listened to episode 258 of Skydive Radio. Alyssa sent me that. There's a interesting interview with the CEO of iFly, and even though I've been out of the wind tunnel game for a while now, it's always fun to listen to what's happening there (laughs) (laughs) so for skydivers or wind tunnel instructors out there i would give it a listen i i really enjoyed it that's all i'll say about that um but the final thing i'd throw out there is i've been following this gabby petito case um a little bit i i haven't uh i haven't really dug in with my normal true crime obsession level of obsession but it, it it you know it is a uh national or even an international case now there's like developments daily unfortunately it has all the sort of things that make uh a homicide case r- really appeal to the masses i mean it is like a young white uh attractive white couple living a life of adventure living that van life they're kind of instagram influencers influencers in training you know, so I, I mean, I hate to say it, but that's the sort of thing that draws masses in, despite how many other horrible crimes happen. Um, and I am one of those masses that got kind of sucked in to the to the to the interesting details of the case. It's incredibly sad, and the more we find out, the more it kind of. What's the story with the case? In case someone hasn't heard of it. Uh, essentially, she she disappeared. And her boyfriend Brian. It sounds like the you know the their relationship that seemed really, really uh, Instagram worthy on social media had a lot of tumultuous arguments behind the scenes, and uh, she had expressed I think to some friends or some family privately that every time they had a fight, it seemed like Brian was just going to drive away in their van and leave her stranded there. So obviously things oh, on social media don't reflect reality a lot of the time. And, um, but Brian showed up in, I think Florida without Gabby and, you know, made up some story or maybe just didn't say anything. And he kind of disappeared. I think he got a lawyer and disappeared. And, um, let's be honest. We, we all kind of know what happened. I mean, the boy, the boyfriend did it and, uh, (laughs) she, she isn't missing. Um, she's, probably dead and as of just today that the the obvious suspicion i think has been confirmed that a body's been found i don't think it's been positively identified as her and now police and the fbi have been spotted at brian's parents house um it's it's really a it's just a truly horrible case Uh, but i think what's kind of interesting about it for me and and Breach was the first one to tell me about it and and Tara somebody I've mentioned on the show recently who shares my love of true crime she had reached out to me about it um yesterday or the day before as well but we uh, Bree and I actually follow travelers on Instagram like uh, people that we've followed or kind of casually know as uh full-time uh travel trailer 
van life sort of nomads for years, they spotted this van uh, where she was last seen and they had worked with the FBI and they had actually posted that they had seen this van and kind of plead to other uh, YouTubers and Instagrammers that travel to check their footage for people that, you know, publish a lot, a lot more. And sure enough, somebody had found on this just sort of B-roll, whatever, they had a GoPro on their van and they were just driving around really pretty places and they had they found footage of the white van on this um, on, on their GoPro and that footage was shared with the FBI and has, has uh, been published online. So there's, there's just a really interesting engagement of internet sleuthing, which can be bad. <laughs> it's not always a good thing. But there's just like a lot of people that uh, want to assist and have the best of intentions. And there's a, a lot of people that were near there just camping and are just haunted by the thought that she was probably alive that day, the day, the day that they were camping. And it might have been the, the last day that she was alive. So it's an interesting case um, that's been on my content circuit a little bit. I, I, I will say that uh, true crime news can be content unfortunately <laughs> i was just gonna ask does an ongoing murder investigation qualify as content but i mean think, think like about the oj a- think about the oj trial man that was that was uh it had everybody glued to the television like it was the super bowl i mean that is absolutely content unfortunately it shouldn't be right i mean it should be uh an investigation that uh that isn't on uh, every corner of social media and national news but uh makes you wonder what's happening out there in the world that uh if if this is like it's like one of the number one stories in the nation and it just makes me wonder like because i'm inherently untrustworthy of the news what like uh what are the uh, the other big stories that are going on that we'll never hear about yeah uh, yeah i mean sure that's probably you know i can see that perspective i think it's more about what captivates people's attention and it's things like this and you know unfortunately you can't blame you can't put all the blame on the news organizations for just whoa whoa, whoa. are you defending the news <laughs> no, now? I, wow no i'm just this saying show is taking a turn <laughs> i'm just saying uh you know there there probably is some conditioning that's happened over the years of what uh what sort of horrible violence and drama sells but at the uh, at the same time, there's probably some responsibility on us, the consumer, that uh, votes with our attention on what things are interesting to us. And unfortunately, those things are not always the best sorts of content. But uh, you know, I'm I'm guilty as charged. Like I definitely have spent uh, at least a couple of hours um, over the last couple of days just looking into it because you just like you hold out hope, but I've I've seen too many of those documentary series and listened to too many of those podcasts. Like I had a I threw out a allegation, a wild guess of what might have happened and and I think that uh, that's exactly what happened. So seems like a pretty safe bet in this yeah. scenario. Yes, it Unfortunately, does. Unfortunately, it's very disturbing. Yep. Thanks, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> Cheer I I'm really uh bringing the cheer after my feral children off top so that's great <laughs> well i uh after researching walking dead for the show i decided to go back and rewatch the entire series that sounds about so, right. uh 
Yeah, my wife and I are we're uh, each night watching a couple episodes. It's pretty awesome. Like I've there's so many good moments in that show that I forgot, and uh, I gotta tell you, I'm enjoying every second of watching it again. So that has been filling up a lot of my content circuit. But also, uh, our friend Derek, he sent me a video. It's uh, I can share it in the show notes. It's called Mirador 2, and it's a skate video that was shot entirely with uh, drones. And there's a lot of FPV racing drone shots. And it's just this really amazing, artsy skate video. And usually, like in skating, the video of the trick is so captivating. And that kind of becomes the star of the show and skate videos are usually shot in a certain way. Like they use a lot of similar angles and a lot of pans and the way that the, the subject will travel across the screen. It's all, it's all been established for years. And this kind of turns all that on its head and gives you this amazing, like aerial perspective and also things that racing drones are great at, like flying underneath arches and things that, you know, like a, a boom camera can never get under so uh, I'll share that in the show notes. If you're into skating or into drones or just into awesome art pieces, check that out as well. It's a, it's a pretty cool video. That sounds awesome. I'll definitely check that out. Derek and Danielle were actually just here at Camp V, and I think they had an awesome visit. It was really fantastic to see them. I can't wait to get out there. Absolutely. Well, how about we take a quick break, and then when we get back, we're going to get into some content. What are some assumptions people make about you? What do they assume about you because of your profession, appearance, hobbies, or tastes? And how many of those assumptions are actually wrong? My name is Dave Kimball, and I'm the host of the Don't Assume podcast, a weekly show where my friends and I lay out all of our assumptions about one topic a week and invite in guest experts to validate or refute those assumptions. So if you want to check your own assumptions about doctors, racial division, skydiving, guns, flight attendants, or any number of other topics. Come check us out at at Don't Assume Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and find the Don't Assume Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you like to listen. The Don't Assume Podcast is streaming now. All right, welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Josh, it is a jungle out there, both literally <laughs> and figuratively. Um, so I hope, like Mowgli, you take me by the hand and lead me into the wild world of content where Maybe anything I can, can happen. offset some of my parental duties <laughs> with this jungle I'm hearing so much about. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let me lay a concept on you and maybe a little bit of a history lesson. Have you ever heard uh, that it's the doom of our species that psychopaths always want to be in charge? I I haven't heard that it's the doom of our species, but I think that there's a pretty much a mountain of uh, scientifically verified evidence to support the claim that CEOs... Uh, there's a there's a large percentage, uh, much larger than say like your average, average random selection of a control group. There's a large percentage of CEOs or people that rise to the tops of organizations and 
you know, especially corporations, commercial enterprises that have a high level of psycho- psychopathy or sociopathy. Is that the would that be the correct term? Basically, a lack. Probably both. Basically, a lack of empathy, a lack of compassion, um, and when you really think about it, unfortunately, it makes sense. That's what a lot of times uh, would be the type of person to rise to the top of a company as somebody that puts profits over people and uh, is willing to do what they have to do to get the job done and uh, climb the ladder and and uh, even maybe backstab some of their colleagues or coworkers, hopefully just in a business sense and not uh, not quite literally. But yeah, I, I do think it, it is, is it is causing a lot of issues. <laughs> It's frightening that our kind of our uh, the human brain and the systems it creates kind of reward that type of behavior. And uh, have you ever heard also, on a related note, that uh, defense contractors uh, may be manufacturing the conditions for war as a way to k- keep their profits rolling? I I have <laughs> heard this outlandish <laughs> theory. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think the I think the industrial uh, the industrial military complex is uh, is a machine that is uh, well oiled, well supplied, and keeps on chugging. Well, I'm talking about a trilogy of novels that is predicated on this concept. But before I get into the novels, I do want to talk about this a little bit because. Um, in the beginning of this book, it's suggested that the defense contractors get together and they decide where they're going to host the next conflict, and then they pick sides. And the number one rule is that it doesn't happen in their parent countries because they don't want their taxpayers dying when they could be f- providing the capital for the government contracts. And uh, it's kind of suggested that there always needs to be a war somewhere. So the optimist in me wants to believe that that doesn't happen. But uh, the cynic in me leans more towards believing that this absolutely happens. This is exactly how it works. (laughs) And then I found this video uh, by this guy, Jake Tran, and he does these videos. It's really interesting. I'll share this on on the show notes. But he, he does like the dark side of economics. Like he covers mob economics and he covers like... uh, Where he goes into defense contractors. He covers the economics of war. Uh, the economics of government, like the the true way it works. But uh, this video is called The Very Profitable Business of War. And it basically lays out exactly how it works in the modern day, which is very frighteningly similar to how it works in these books that I'm talking about. He said that over the last 3,400 years, we've only spent 268 of those years in peace. And this is in large part to the way that war is treated as a business. And he, uh, he presents this four-stage or four-step process to uh, how to be a war profiteer. So the first step is manufacture war materials. I'm sure that's the easy one for all of us to step right into. Uh, number two is lobby for war. Number three is arm and support both sides of the conflict. And then number four is what you always get from a snarky list about economics. It's profit. <laughs> yeah. So that's it, usually it's probably number a little... three is a bunch of question marks, and then four exactly. Is yeah. yeah. Yep. He has a pretty uh, he has a pretty uh, good idea on how it works, though. He's no question marks in this. He breaks it down like into granular detail. And what he says is that uh, war is to the government what life and death is to the citizens. It's the ultimate discipline of governments. And 
war is so profitable that uh, 21,000 millionaires and billionaires were made in World War One in the U.S. alone, strictly off of these government contracts manufa- manufacturing war products. So and these are these, these uh, are novels. So what you're saying right now is like he is laying out the a very um believable argument of what is actually happening but this is in the context of a fictional series a fictional trilogy yeah so i'm talking about uh it's a a trilogy of novels it's called the red trilogy by linda nagata and it's a series that started in 2015 and the story follows this high-tech unit in the u.s army known as a linked combat squad and they're headed up by lieutenant james shelley he's the star of the novel and this book imagines a near future. It's not hard to believe. It's uh, high technology gives these advanced soldiers a huge advantage. They have things like overhead drone support, a constant link between every soldier, provides this almost godlike awareness to the unit, and advanced weaponry that uses uh, AI for targeting and engaging enemies. And unbeknownst to this military unit, they are also the star of a reality TV show that harnesses the connectivity of the squad to produce video that's edited for profit and for influence on the part of the defense contractors. Oh, wow. And uh, Lieutenant James Shelley, he has a reputation of being able to premeditate danger and predict attacks. And he comes he comes to find out that uh, this ability is actually this rogue AI that's influencing him. This is the red, is what they call this AI. And it's influencing him through his high-tech equipment and he has to kind of come to terms with the fact that he may be a soldier in a secret army ruled by a non-human entity that prioritizes its objectives over the lives of its soldiers. And uh, the primary opponent of the Red, which is this AI, is the defense contractors. And the book it refers to the defense contractors as dragons. And they're kind of like the ultimate power in this world. They hold like the reins of life and death and profit and profit definitely rules the heaps and this is kind of like uh this is kind of the stuff that conspiracy theories are made of and uh i'd like to think that conflicts aren't precipitated just as a way to keep profits rolling but the more i learn the more i think i'm wrong about that like how much do you think like defense contractors control our congressional decision making i think money drives most if not all decisions that uh, we think that we have some influence over, I don't think we have much. And I hate to say this, but the more that I learn um, about things that aren't even related to war necessarily, but just our economy and just our, our supposedly free marketplace or uh, you know a stock market where we can invest, the more that I learn, the more that I think everything is influenced by the very small percentage of people that have the vast majority of wealth. So Indeed, I, yeah. and I hate to be, <laughs> yeah, I hate obviously. to be, I hate to be conspiratorial <laughs> as well because I, you know, I, um, there's a lot of valid arguments against like, let's take nine 11, uh, just as an example, because why not just, uh, j- just skip down this path with glee um, you this know, has already been such a cheerful episode. <laughs> I mean, recently it was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And one of the the thoughts that I always had um, that just so clearly 
in my mind, disproved, or maybe didn't disprove, but strongly um, invalidated any sort of convincing argument for a conspiracy that 9-11 was the inside job was simply that a cover-up that big would be too difficult to pull off. There would always be a whistleblower. And you just, you know, it, it seemed to support more that the government's just incompetent over, you know, something. But it, it, it's this still, the more that I think about it, it's not that great of an argument because the level of incompetence that it takes when you spend billions, trillions of dollars in a defense budget, you have the best intelligence, you have the best equipment, you have the highest trained uh, analysts, soldiers, what have you, and then you have a handful of people with uh, limited flight training, box cutters, and they can affect the policy making. They can put a nation into a fearful state for decades. I mean, that is such a level of incompetence and such an intelligence failure um, that it is borderline like, um, you know, an inside job of a different sort. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, hard, it's hard to believe sometimes that there can be that level of incompetence. And it almost seems to suggest that there is an allowance of that to happen or that there's uh, some benefit to you know, there is, there is, you know, there, there, you can find motivation in, in pushing through something like the Patriot Act or in fighting another war for 20 years and justifying that budget to be spent in Afghanistan. I mean, I, I totally can see the argument for a conspiracy. What I always thought was the real conspiracy was not that the government did 9 11. I always thought the conspiracy was just having something like the Patriot Act, Patriot Act ready to go and just looking for the tragedy that would allow that kind of bill to be pushed through. And I, I think that that would be a much, a much easier conspiracy to cover up because that's kind of like the motivation is there for people in those positions to just want that to happen. Yeah, the, the politicians seem like an opportunistic bunch. Indeed. <laughs> you, you don't have a lot of respect for them? Is that what you're saying? I, uh, I mean, uh, you know, wolves are opportunistic as well. I have a lot of respect for the ability of a wolf to get what it, get what it wants. Doesn't mean I have to like it. <laughs> Indeed. I'm going to watch I, out for wolves. Like, I don't want to be, uh, you know, I, w- I wouldn't get my hand my baby over to get raised by wolves. <laughs> well, uh, in the 9-11 analogy, the baby is all of your rights <laughs> and your privacy. But I did find some stats about how the defense sector influences our government. So the the defense sector gave $285 million in campaign contributions over the last two decades. And they spent... $2.5 billion on lobbying over the last two decades. They also secured $30.6 billion in foreign arms sales from 2016 to 2018. And they've hired over 200 lobbyists in recent years that have previously worked in the very governmental systems that regulate their industry. So in other words, they are one of the heaviest spenders when it comes to lobbying the government for policy changes. And you can be assured that those policies support their ability to make money. 
And the conflicts really are just a byproduct that allows them to continue printing money, essentially. And, you know, it's kind of like you can't, you can't sell new Sidewinder missiles if the old ones are just sitting in a warehouse somewhere. And what better way to use those old missiles than blowing up the enemies of democracy or our allies or our own troops? I mean, that's what happens when you sell weapons all, all over the world. And that's what happens when a government allows companies based in their country to arm foreign powers. And, you know, just you know, just look at Afghanistan for an example of you know, locally produced arms falling into the wrong hands either through neglect or just by the world's constant need to redraw the boundaries between friend and foe. And that's, to me, that's almost as disturbing as being raised by a wolf. I mean, was it, you know, and, and the, the thing that's like so tough to argue um, against conspiracy theories is when there are, uh, you know, factual historical things that have been proven that have happened that don't paint the uh, federal forces in a very good light when they, you know, was it in uh, the drug wars, the cocaine wars of the 60s? Wasn't the CIA arming different groups, different countries in an effort to destabilize foreign countries? I mean, that is some, like, crazy stuff, man. <laughs> like, and that happened, you know, for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's... Uh... I think it's pretty much proven at this point that the CIA was selling cocaine as part of the Iran Contra scandal as a way to like to arm revolutionaries with that money, like basically providing cocaine to dealers in the U.S. and using those profits to arm the enemies of communism, quote unquote. And anytime something like that happens, you just end up with very well-trained and heavily armed groups that you don't know what is going to happen to that knowledge once, you know, the, the slight governmental influence of their trainers goes away. Yeah. Well, uh, it's at least I can take some comfort in knowing somebody is winning when wars are being fought. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. The defense contractors. Exactly. It's not, it's not anybody on any particular side. It's, there's a lot of losers in war, but at least those defense contractors are, uh, coming out on top. Getting those sweet, sweet bonuses. That's right. Well, let's get out of the realm of conspiracy and, uh, talk about one of my favorite topics weapons <laughs> yeah. and technology. That's, that's the thing about this is like as <laughs> as much as I um, really wish we lived on a peaceful planet when you were talking about the high-tech future soldier, it sounds pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. I lo- love this. I love uh, entertainment and content with like high-tech gadgetry and weaponry. It's just fun for sure. I mean, that's it. This, this uh, series has this awesome uh, take on war and the state of the world and the way the government is influenced by the commercial sector. But also like what I love about sci-fi is, you know, the, the technology and the evolutionary development from current day tech. And this series is full of near future tech. that seems like it would imbue a soldier with near superpowers. And, uh, it seems like a soldier from this series could almost single-handedly wipe out like an entire platoon of modern day soldiers. Thanks to their tech edge. And um, I'm going to talk about some of this stuff that I 
found amazing, fascinating in this book, as well as some of the currently available analogs that this stuff could conceivably evolve out of. And again, one thing I love about sci-fi is seeing, you know, when there seems to be a lot of research put into not just making up MacGuffins, but, but saying like in 50 years, this could be what evolves out of the things that you have in your home or the things that are available to the military now. All the modern day tech, it all has its own evolutionary timeline. And I love seeing that uh, a book or a story or something is researched enough that I can almost see that path from here to there. Totally. I'm wearing uh, Kevlar boxer shorts right now. Just in case you get shot That's in the right. grundle, right? <laughs> so... I don't fetishize war. I just like the aesthetics and the concepts. So maybe it's a little <laughs> bit of a fetish. But uh, as horrific as the implementation of this type of tech can be, I do find it fascinating how the military drives innovation. And unfortunately, humanity's war like nature truly is double-edged sword. But a book like this like falls perfectly into my headspace, allowing me to conceptualize things like maybe that I've done in a video game or you know things that scenarios that will never be uh, presented to me. But you know sci-fi such a great avenue for that type of stuff definitely so the the first thing is this is a piece of tech i wish i had uh shelly the main character he has an integrated overlay it's like a hood built into his eyes that allows him to track his team member status and location is allows him to pull up these overhead maps from uh their drone they call it an angel and uh th- that gives him the ability to spot potential threats long before they approach his squad Essentially, he has the functions available to uh, other team members through their helmets. Like, they all have this overlay through their helmet, but he has it built into his eyes. And his overlay also functions as, like, a modern-day iPhone, which allows him to access the Internet, place phone calls, and watch porn. You know, just, like, basic Internet stuff <laughs> all right there on his uh, behind his eyelids. Tweet angrily. Yep. Do you think he wakes he up a, with like uh, really dry eyes because he's been <laughs> staring at a screen built into his retina like it's all day? Co-fefeing all night. <laughs> so they also have the uh, the Harkin Integrated Tactical Rifle, the Hitter, because the military loves its acronyms, and it's this uh, it's this AI controlled sh- uh, targeting system built into it that allows him to just place his targeting reticle in his overlay over a target and it basically follows wherever his gun is pointing and then the AI will even fire the gun when it gets over the target so he can just kind of swing the gun around and it's linked to his eyes so he never has to really bring it up and aim it if he doesn't want to oh that's very convenient that kind of reminds so, me of a real life tech I think it's the well oh there is real life tech all right based on I I couldn't believe that that was actually something that was coming soon but I found a bunch of videos on this uh, YouTube channel, Task and Purpose. They just—it's this guy, Chris Cappy. He's like a he calls himself a uh, a former mediocre soldier turned uh, military explainer. Interesting. He, uh, it, it's really funny. Like he's got like a good, good uh, self-deprecating humor. But uh, he said that there is a system coming out. It's called the Next Gen Squad Weapon, and it has a fire control system. The, uh, it's a scope, but it, it contains a laser rangefinder, temperature gauge, wind sensor, altimeter, ballistic computer. It's all built into the site, and it also integrates with a soldier's goggles that can proje- project like a like a targeting reticle, and it works almost exactly like how they describe in this book. You can just swing the target, uh, the, the rifle, until your heads-up display reticle 
covers your target, and then you just pull the trigger and it shoots. So you can shoot from all these weird, crazy positions. And, I mean, that that seems like that would give you such a huge advantage in a firefight because you would not have to break line – or you could break line of sight and still fight. I mean, yeah. that's a, that seems like a massive step up. And that seems like some sci-fi shit. It definitely does. I was th- what I was thinking of was the I think it's the Black Hawk helicopter, maybe something more advanced. I I don't know um, military uh, technology or like military aircraft. For example, I just went to the Montrose Air Shows tribute to aviation. I was on the way back from the um, uh, drop zone, got a couple jumps in on Saturday, and I uh, kind of threw a friend of Brian eyes that we had been camp hosts at, at one of the state parks we worked at. He has a, I believe it's his nephew that is the commander of the squadron for the E6. Now I, I didn't know what the E6 was because I don't know military, uh, lingo or terms or aircraft. And, uh, but it's basically a Boeing 707 and they have, you know, a handful of these and they are the communications headquarters essentially for a nuclear uh, if there's a nuclear strike. So they can actually, using VLF, very low frequency, instead of uh, the more common VHF for very high frequency, with VLF, they can communicate to submarines underwater while they're like 20,000 feet in the air. He said he had to be ready to go in 15 minutes. They had to be 15 miles away uh, from the airport in 15 minutes from literally just like sitting in a shack and an alarm going off, like starting engines, blasting off everything. Um, like anytime he's on call, anytime basically. he's, yeah. Anytime him and his Ooh. you know crew is ready to go. And I mean, it's a large, you know, it's a large, uh, four engine aircraft. Um, and you can look it up. It, it, they, they have a, they have a, uh, radio antenna that is lowered on a drogue chute outside the back, but they can't fly too fast. I guess, I, I guess a wire in air becomes kind of an airfoil and can get out of control. So they need to keep the wire stalled. So how they do this is they do like a 40 degree bank. I think he said, uh, which is steep, a uh, 45 degree bank, you know, that's half of 90. That's, that, that's considered what you do for like steep turns on like a commercial check ride. But they'd fly this large aircraft with this wire behind it on a drogue at a 40 degree bank, just like a knot or two above stall speed for the aircraft. And they just do these Ooh. tight spirals at like 20,000 feet. Um, and they're there if a nuke is launched from say Russia um, they would be, uh, they'd get up in the air so they could survive the nuke so that they could launch the retaliate, uh, the, the re- retaliation nuke over to Russia. So it was really interesting. I, I really had a great time, um, talking to him He's a very, super knowledgeable guy. Um, but anyway, uh, the, that's my long winded way of saying, I thought what you were talking about, I think it's the Blackhawk helicopter where they could aim their helmet and the gun you know, the under-mounted, uh, bottom-mounted gun would actually follow their view, and so they could just aim by turning their head. But I could be thinking of a totally wrong aircraft because I don't know anything. I think that's uh, the Apache. Oh, the Apache. Uh, like a that tech, sounds right. Tech chopper. Yep. yep. I, I don't know anything for real other than <laughs> what I watch on uh, YouTube and reading books and playing video games, but that does sound familiar. Yeah, I think the Apache. Like a, I think that's what it is. 
I think yep. like the F thirty five has something similar where yes. they have like a uh, a heads up system where they can essentially look look through. through. Yeah, it's like a synthetic vision overlay. Yeah, and but you heard it here, you heard it here first, folks. We we don't know anything. I just <laughs> we both said it. <laughs> Indeed, this is man, all. It's conjecture. cool stuff, man. It's very cool stuff. I mean, I'm you know they have like very unique tools today for very unique missions. And that's all the stuff he could tell me about. I mean, they wouldn't allow any, you know, they had planes out there where like kids could go on or you could go uh, get a tour and uh, it's cool stuff. The E6, no one's a lot on board. Cause as he put it, they've got secret stuff on board. So he's like, sorry, yeah, I can't give you a, can't give you a tour of the E6. Anything involving the nuclear program, I imagine is probably locked down pretty tight. Yeah. There's a, uh, one other piece of tech I want to talk about. This is such an awesome, uh, such an awesome idea, and it, it's it's amazing and also terrifying at the same time. But they ha- he has something called a skull net, and it's this uh, it's a constellation of they call them neuromodulation microbeads uh, implanted in their brain, and they these beads can cause neurochemical release to control emotions and do things like eliminate PTSD. And it's controlled by the skull net, which is this uh, this array of wires that's implanted under the scalp. And it's connected to a network that allows uh, the modulation of emotions, but also it kind of functions like what Elon Musk is claiming the Neuralink will be able to do to allow, like he said, that the Neuralink will allow you to speak without speaking. Mm-hmm. And in this book, they can communicate, which essentially telepathically through technology, uh, through their skull nets and it's it's linked to all of their other systems like it's linked to Shelley's overlay so he can get visual feedback like what the skull net is doing but also they talk about training the skull net in a way that uh, after being implanted in your brain for long enough it can start to pick up like what the chemical cues are for when you're thinking a certain thing like like yes or no, or you can even teach it like simple sentences so they can communicate with like these almost like hotkeys through their skull net, or they can communicate uh, by thinking words in their brain and it acts, acts like a radio. That is really cool. I think cool. that's such an awesome piece of technology. And uh, I feel like it's right around the corner. <sighs> it really is with the Neuralink. I mean, this is like what Elon Musk is saying, the Neuralink, the types of things it will be able to do eventually. And I don't know if that's scary or awesome or both. It's I, I both. It's always both. both. You got it. It really is. Yep. So through a, there's a series of events that I won't spoil. Uh, this a lot of this information that I'm presenting to you is kind of uh, like the plot details are kind of given when you look up the book on Amazon. So I'm not really giving away anything and just scratching the surface. But uh, Shelley becomes uh, the world's first cyborg. He's robotic from the thighs down. He has an integrated overlay. It's built in and an internal, always active skull net. So they, they talk about him learning to use his cybernetic legs. And it really brings to light how amazing the most mundane things that our bodies can do really are. Like he goes through the process after losing his legs of having to learn to stand and then walk and then run. And he talks about Sounds how like he has a to, feral wolf soldier. It is. <laughs> just imagine like teaching that little feral boy to smoke a cigarette, how hard it would be to get through to him. You'd have to, you have to explain everything, cigarettes, breathing fire. But, uh, 
he like Shelley has to think through every step of the complex process of extending his leg and then flexing his foot and then planting the heel, absorbing the impact. This is all just to learn to walk. And it's things like that. I think they provide this awesome vantage point for realizing how amazing the simple things we do, like standing up or jumping or throwing a ball and catching it. Like everything we do is a complex series of difficult to replicate actions that are controlled by the most com- complex biological processing system on the planet. Like that reminds me of how Avatar made me feel. How after watching Avatar, just everything seemed amazing because I was able to imagine doing like everyday mundane tasks through an Avatar body. And that's how this made me feel too about just walking, like thinking about the basic process of what's required to walk. It just makes like being able to pick up the phone. It just it's so intricate like what your hands have to do to be able to pick up a phone or dial it and this is another one of the things i love about sci-fi like very few other genres send me down rabbit holes like that you know i love those videos of seeing the recipient of a new prosthetic limb use it for the first time and they are like they have you know i i just saw one recently and it was some sort of complex prosthetic arm and they like turned their hand and picked up something with their, with their hands. Things that I imagine are very, very high tech and new in the world of prosthetics. I don't know if they're controlling it um, through some sort of neural um, pathway or if it's like a muscle in their arm that, you know, they're, they're tensing a certain part of their arm that's sending a signal to the prosthetic. I don't know the, the method of activating these these things, but I love the look of surprise on their face when they're just like, this is like the you know the first time in uh, I assume a long time where they've like used or maybe ever that they've picked up an object with their right arm because it was missing, and they're just like filled with surprise at their own abilities. It's and it makes you really realize that we take so many things for granted. But I just love those videos. Have you? Do you ever like stumble across things like that? Yeah, I mean that's exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. How it things like that make the mundanity of normal life just seem like magic almost. You know, we go like we go through life every day, and we have like a series of repetitive tasks that you have to do every day. It's just as part of being part of being a human, and those things start to seem like background noise. But it's interesting when, you know, like a piece of content, video like that, or even a piece of fiction can make you think, just stop for a second and think about how amazing it is to be a human and that, you know, to have four working limbs and to be able to do those things as part of like this. I mean, it seems like a biomechanical process, you know, like our, our body is such an amazing machine and you know, we've talked about the life pilot, you know, being a life pilot on this show that those are the kind of things I think that are required to be a life pilot. Like, I feel like you have to be fascinated by those things to consistently be amazed and impressed with the fact that you are a human. I think that's really important for getting the most out of life. I like that. I'll agree with that. Perfect. I'm contractually obligated. <laughs> you are. We uh, wrote that contract up right when Harvard started sending us all those cease and desist letters <laughs> of uh, 
to stop giving out all of the information on how to be a contentologist, Brett and I decided we should probably cover our own asses. And you know, so we, we said started. Harvard, we write our own real book. Exactly. Yeah. And, and then, Brett is contractually obligated <laughs> to agree with anything I say. You got it. So a primary driving narrative across all three of these books is emphasizing the power that the Link Combat Squad has by leaning on their technology and their group dynamic and then stripping either the tech advantage of the, or the uh, group advantage away from the main characters. And these, di- these books also dip heavily into the concepts that the more integrated we become with our electronics, the more susceptible we are to intrusions like hacking and viruses. And when we do eventually merge with our electronics, like how secure are we going to be? Like how secure would you need to feel to take the step to, to fully integrate, to have like a Neuralink style computer in your head? Like that would, that would add so many advantages. Like it's almost incalculable at this point. But do you feel like that would ever outweigh the risk for you to take the step to do that as a person that grew up your entire life without it? I, I think um, I think it's a pretty cut and dry motivation. I think that people do a very simple calculation of what the benefits are. And I think the risks are always so nebulous and we never really truly understand them until years down the road. It's similar to getting an iPhone, right? Like when everybody else has an iPhone, they have, they're better at looking things up. They're better at taking photos. They're better at, uh, you know, looking up information, distracting themselves. It's just a really incredible tool to have. It's a really incredible device. And you don't want to be the only person without an iPhone, and it's only years later we start to unpack uh, how detrimental things like surfing on social media and and you know becoming obsessed with looking up Gabby Petito uh, murder case details constantly on your phone like that you know these things have a negative impact obviously we Indeed. know that uh, but no I like I can't <laughs> navigate without a phone anymore and I used to be good at it yeah and you know and that's that's what I'm saying is I think that like you don't want to be the only person without a Neuralink, because who wants to be uh, left behind? Um, and so, you know, I would different. say 99.9% of people are going to jump on a, a tool like this that has any sort of benefit because we don't know the risks. And even if you sort of understand the risks, they might happen down the line to somebody else. <laughs> you know what I mean? But th- but that's different than uh, saying that you would be like, an early or even a mid-level adopter, I think that decision will be very easy when people are being born into a world where that's the norm. But imagine like the first people to take those steps. It, I imagine in the beginning when people decide to do this, it'll be fairly secure for a while. And then as the technology starts to catch on, of course people are going to start trying to hack it. And then it's going to be like every other piece of technology, just like a, a constant battle to see like who can stay ahead of it, like the people working at the corporation that makes the Neuralink and writes all the software, or the almost infinite amount of people with the time and skill to just try to crack it just for the lulls. That is what seems scary to me of being someone maybe in like 30 years where someone like us, like, well, yeah, we're getting old. Uh, This Neuralink seems like a cool thing. And, it's going to be hard to make that step, I think. But at the same time, I would desperately want to do it more than anything else. 
It it is scary, but I've n- I have not come across a person yet that ditched their computer or ditched their phone because there was just like too many hacks. Like I know people that have been hacked. My dad gets hacked unfortunately all the time. It's not in your head right now though. <laughs> yeah, but I mean our we put a lot of our life and our mind into our devices. I mean, we put our personal details, we put uh private information, we put banking, financial information. Um so there's a lot on your computer, you know, there's a lot on your phone and, uh, but still the, the benefits of using those devices still far outweigh, um, the downsides. And some might argue like we're trapped in this society in modern day society to have a job. I don't know how you would pursue a job, send, you know, send resumes, apply, communicate without the use of modern technology. So in a way we're sort of, uh, we've been captured by the necessity um but also i you know i think we also enjoy using the tools as well i mean i don't think i don't feel trapped like i enjoy using these devices but uh i love it yeah no me too i mean but i, I write that's what i'm saying i don't show think show on my phone <laughs> i don't think I, do. I don't think anybody is i i think you're um i think you're in your mind exaggerating how hesitant people will be there's going to be like a handful of uh, opposers and they're they're just going to be like left behind and they, like they might be right like i'm not disagreeing with somebody saying we need to slow our roll like this is something kevin kelly would argue and what technology wants is like we should slow our roll with all of this technology just a little bit just think it through a tiny bit and he's just like totally in the minority and people don't listen to him and they'll just like get the next thing as quickly as they can well, I definitely am not a proponent for slowing our role. And I mean, th- the reason I asked this is because I feel like two pulls, two different directions. There's a huge part of me that wants to have a Neuralink, an overlay, like augmented reality. I, I hope I see that in the next couple of years. I want that. It seems so amazing. But there's a big part of me also that I feel like the scary step is when it goes inside your brain when it's attached to your biological processes, that is when that, I mean, that would make me very hesitant, but I would want it so bad, (laughs) which is, I mean, I don't know. This stuff is why I love sci-fi. Like I love thinking about this stuff. I love thinking about future tech and how it might affect our lives, how it affects warfare. I mean, I love thinking about integration and with technology and AI. I've been such a sucker for that stuff my entire life. And I love finding a nice meaty trilogy that pushes all my content buttons. And this trilogy, The Red by Linda Nagata, like I discovered this randomly a few years ago, thanks to an Amazon recommendation. So there's an algorithm that's seriously dialed into the wants and needs of people like me. So a little bit of integration with technology right there. It's actually kind of scary how uh, good of a recommendation this was for me because <laughs> I think I just finished my third read through this series with just enough time between each consumption cycle that I've forgotten most of the pertinent details. But it reminded me how masterfully Linda Nagata has crafted this narrative in this world. So if you love sci-fi, future warfare, AI, global conspiracies, well-crafted narratives, any of those things, you should definitely check out this lesser-known series, The Red by Linda Nagata. I'd say it's one of sci-fi's best-kept secrets. Nice. I definitely will do that. If only I had a Neuralink chip implant in my brain where I could just upload these books instantly. 
uh, right into my brain meats because it sounds absolutely delicious. And I think mm. my plate is a little too full uh, to pick up a trilogy right now. But this sounds right up my alley as well because something I love about you, Josh, you like a lot of the same fantastic things that I do. <laughs> and you know what this, I like about you? You think just like me. This level of uh, sci-fi future AI tech uh, with a, a healthy dose of uh, real-life parallel uh, uh, drama, politics, society. That's right up my alley, buddy. So thank you so much for bringing that to me. Um, I'm really going to miss you over these next couple weeks. I'm going to miss seeing your face on Zoom, and I'll always remember that time you pulled your pants down a little bit and showed me that <laughs> giant uh, uh, that giant uh, wound that you have on your butt cheek from riding your one wheel a little bit too quickly uphill. So um, to all the listeners out there, um, thank you for tuning in. Uh, the next couple of weeks are definitely going to be a surprise. I am i can't wait to listen to the show along with you as a listener, listenerologist. Um, remember, we do have uh, Instagram. We have a... Uh, what else we have, Josh? We have a Discord. We have Facebook, a Facebook. Discord. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you can email, email us. us. <laughs> yep, contentclearinghouse at gmail.com. Uh, no the in the email, but if you're looking for us on Instagram or on Facebook, it's at the Content Clearinghouse. And we're going to keep up with all our social media posts, so be sure to check it out. And we'll see you soon. Thanks for tuning in. Something I didn't talk about. Uh, the the red, which is the AI program, it uh, it evolves from a marketing and inventory program that runs amok and gains sentience. And uh, this is actually the second time in a book. I've seen the idea of an advanced AI evolving from some mundane parent program. This other book I read, uh, Avogadro Core, kind of a weird title, but uh, it's about an AI that evolves from an email program. And I thought that was kind of an interesting concept about these algorithms. Like in this case, this algorithm, uh, this marketing and inventory program, it's designed to sense like the wants and needs of the consumer and when it gains sentience, it kind of uses that base program of sensing what its users need. And it uses that as a way to influence like world events. I mean, it, it's like, it'd be like if Facebook's ad algorithm gained sentience, except somehow less evil than that seems like it would be. <laughs> but what do you think about that idea of one of these algorithms that seems to control everything in our lives these days, just sell you know, self-correcting or writing parts of its own code to to gain sentience. Yeah, I have a I have a feeling of how this is going to go down based on absolutely nothing except for consuming a lot of AI articles and um, AI related science fiction content. But unlike Robopocalypse's premise which is a fantastic book i really enjoyed Ooh, that's but they, a good one they sort of build this um ai in like a in like a laboratory so it is like a, a program that i think that they're you know they're trying to develop the first sentient artificial intelligence and i don't think they explain much like how it works but um i think it was the tim urban wait but why sorry mando's trying to get down do you, are you trying to get down buddy 
<laughs> He's so all, adorable. He is such a good boy. He is such a good boy. There you go, buddy. You can go. He wants to cuddle, but then he wants to get down, and he's tangled up in a mess of podcasting wires. Um, My feeling, and I think that I got this sense from Tim Urban's Wait But Why fantastic article, deep dive into artificial intelligence that he did, which I I actually want to revisit now that I'm I'm, uh, reminiscing about this um, super in-depth read. But I feel like we are going to get some sort of intelligence that just emerges out of a larger network and we aren't even going to understand really how it works or how it happens. So I I think the comparison, if I remember correctly, was that on the internet, we have, you know, we have a network of processors, right? A network of computers that are all communicating with each other. And we see these weird phenomena all the time in modern day networks where you send an email or you send some sort of packet of information from one processor to another processor and there's code there's algorithms that are designed to um, send it the most efficient the quickest way possible and we don't really uh, specify the specifics we just sort of leave it up to its own devices and don't really understand the inner workings of it, but it will, sometimes these packets of information will be be taken apart and take different pathways through this network and then be put together on the other side. And it's weird that data scientists say that they like don't fully understand how that happens, how it optimizes it. And also you do this enough times, there will sometimes be these weird mutations in the information, right? These little... And so it just, it seems to reflect biological life a lot where you have like very simple, um, you have like a very simple system that over time becomes more complex and there's mutations that may seem like, you know, minor errors, but those errors can sometimes birth some sort of new um, development, new complexity. But then the other, the other parallel that I was um, kind of going to go down the path of is in the internet, in the modern day internet, if I remember this fact correctly, because it is kind of interesting, the number of processing units, the number of computers is roughly approximate to the number of neurons in a brain. And so the World Wide Web is somewhat analogous in its sheer number of neurons being processors and connections being the synapses between those neurons. We're actually looking at basically a large network that's similar to a brain not saying it's the same thing but my you know what i kind of foresee is just a you know just a sort of uh, something just sort of emerging out of the network that somebody discovers as opposed to like an ai that is developed or programmed in a lab although that is a possibility as well because there are teams of people that are actively increasing processing speeds and trying to write programs that can teach themselves and improve without much guidance. Um, so it's hard to say, but I do feel like it's inevitable. Well, that definitely lends credibility to the concepts that I've read in sci-fi. It just evolving from, you know, it may not, it may be a centralized thing. It may happen over like wide distributed network, but I feel like that evolution of like an AI waking up is probably going to come from some 
based program like they like in this like a marketing program and uh that's man it's going to be such an alien intelligence just having its baseline be something like like imagine the facebook algorithm waking up like how an how much of an alien intelligence that would be well uh, i I mean i think that's like the the scariest part about this and that's why people like elon musk nick bostrom are like basically terrified of an ai because if you sit down and you think about it for too long you have something that can improve itself using all available information all available resources it can do it you know extremely rapidly um the the thinking by people that think about this a lot more than somebody like you and i do is that this thing could surpass us in intelligence in a matter of days to the point where you know it's we're not even playing the same game in a level of intelligence and so you know i think the i think the example that tim urban used in his example is like you know how does an ant understand human intelligence like there's a there's a large iq difference between like us and a spider right and like this ai could advance so quickly that we are basically a bug compared to it and so it might it might be a very uh very 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 real threat to us and it's not because it has some sort of animosity or hatred but because it just does not understand at all what our motivations our perspectives our thoughts our feelings our emotions does not compute <laughs> like it's not um it might just be like on a totally different realm of understanding information or processing data it's super interesting to think about I for like several years, all that I read about, like everything, content, sci-fi article, like I I sought out specifically AI related stuff because I it is like as fascinating to me as like UAPs for sure. But um, you know, and some people don't think that it's possible. I think that's crazy. I think it's inevitable. But uh, there's a lot of different theories and a lot of different perspectives, and no one's right until they're proven right or wrong. Only time will tell. Whoo! <laughs> Sleep tight, listeners. 